Dear Lord, we say amen to everything that we've sung. Lord Jesus, truly you are our glory and our prize. Um, You are the crowning jewel of our hope, the fact that we get to spend eternity with you in your presence, being ruled by you, being loved by you and loving you in return and serving you perfectly forevermore, unhindered by sin or by any other encumbrance, but just fully equipped by your spirit forevermore to serve you in perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that will clothe us forevermore. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that, our glorious hope. And we thank you for your word and how you provide for us every Sunday to be able to come together and to um, have our lives examined by you through your word, your spirit convicting us and comforting us, pruning us, making us more like Christ every time we come before your word with a heart of faith. And Lord, I pray that that would be how we come this morning, that you would prepare our hearts um, to be hearts of good soil that would receive your word readily, eagerly, and would bear fruit from it with perseverance. Lord, please, by your spirit, help us as we look at your word together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in Psalm 139 today. And as I mentioned before, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a day when we remember that God made mankind in his image. And because we've been created in the image of God, that means that every single human life has inestimable value. That's because God himself has infinite value. It's his image in which we have been made. Therefore, every person's life is sacred, whether that life has only just begun as a fertilized egg in his or her mother's womb, or whether that life is at the other end of the spectrum, approaching the end, um, having lived many, many years. Every life is sacred. And for that reason, it is appropriate and right to call every unjust killing of human life as evil and as murder. And that includes the abortion of the unborn. Abortion is murder. And there is a worldwide holocaust of abortion that is going on every single day. To abort a child in the womb is to commit murder, and it is to earn the wrath of God. But we all, in this room, every single one of us is guilty of murder. Whether you've unjustly taken a life through abortion or through some other means, or whether you have just hated someone in your heart without actually physically carrying out the act, we have all broken God's command, thou shalt not murder. But Jesus came to save murderers, thank God. Otherwise, we would all be lost. He laid his life down for us, paying for our sin on the cross and rising from the dead so that God would save our life and forgive us our sins when we turn away from our sins and we put our trust in him alone as our Lord and Savior. And in light of the fact that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I wanted to go to a passage this morning that um, has bearing upon this issue. 
And that's why we are in Psalm 139. In this psalm, it was penned by King David. And it's a psalm that we're all familiar with, but familiarity can breed contempt. We've heard it so many times that we can grow lazy in hearing what God is saying to us through it. And my prayer is that we will consider afresh this morning what God would have us to know about him as we study it together yet again. And I think as we come to the end of this psalm, we will have a a greater appreciation for the preciousness of life. This psalm can be broken down into four sections. Verses 1 through 6, we'll see the complete knowledge of God. Verses 7 through 12, we'll see the confining presence of God. Verses 13 through 18, we'll see the comforting craftsmanship of God. And then the final six verses, 19 through 24, we'll see one's conclusive devotion to God. So let's start with verses 1 through 6, the complete knowledge of God. And I'm not going to reread the whole passage since we read it just a little while ago. Um, But let's just walk through this verse by verse. Verse 1, how does David begin? He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. David begins by saying that Yahweh, the God with whom David has a covenantal relationship, this God, whose name is Yahweh, has searched him and known him. That's what the word Lord in all caps stands for. It's the name of God, Yahweh. This God has searched David and known David. Now, does God need to go through a process of searching before he can fully know David? Well, the answer is, of course not. God knows everything all at once. He's always known everything. There's never been a point in time when he's discovered anything because he knows everything. But David wants to get across to us the idea that God knows him so completely that it's as if God had conducted an investigation of David to the point that there are no more secrets. There are no unknowns when it comes to what God knows about David. So what kind of things does God know? He goes on in verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. It's even the minutia that God knows about David. God knows every move David makes when he takes a seat, when he gets up to do something, and everything in between. And not only that, but God knows the thoughts and the intentions of David's heart. He knows every reason why David does what he does. And he knows it from afar. That is, God knows ahead of time what David is going to do and why he's going to do it. This knowledge truly is complete. Verse 3, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. David says that God scrutinizes him, or literally God winnows him. Winnows the way David lives his life from the moment he gets up to the moment he goes to sleep. And in the Bible, winnowing is a term that is used to describe the process of separating chaff from wheat. The person would take the winnowing fork and toss grain up into the air and the wind would blow the chaff away, leaving behind the heavier grain. 
And when the, when the Bible uses winnowing in a figurative sense, it refers to judgment. God is, in other words, analyzing every single move that David makes. Every thought he thinks, God is evaluating it. And it's either falling into the category of sin against God or of righteousness, a thought or a deed that's pleasing to him. Every single thing, every single thought, every single movement, God is winnowing. He's evaluating, scrutinizing. And it says that the Lord is intimately acquainted with David, with all his ways. Speaks of familiarity, like a wife knows the daily routine of her husband, so God knows our daily routines. He knows everything about us, what our habits are. He's intimately acquainted with all of David's ways. Verse 4, he goes on, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Even before David speaks, Yahweh knows exactly what David is going to say and why he's going to say it. God truly does know it all. And so David, he's meditating on this truth. He's pondering it. He's rolling it around in his mind. And this truth that we've seen in the first four verses drives him to a conclusion. Verse 5. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. The word, therefore, enclosed is most often rendered as besiege in contexts where a military force is laying siege to a city. David feels as if God is surrounding him on every side. So perceptive is God's knowledge of David. And it says that God has laid his hand upon David. And when you take that together with the previous phrase, it gives the sense that God has a firm grip upon David. Such a firm grip that David cannot move. It kind of gives you the image of, say, when you were a little kid. Some of us, the more adventurous of us, would see a toad jumping across the ground, and you would take your hand and you would place it over the toad so that the toad could not go anywhere. You had laid your hand upon it. That's almost the sense we get here. David cannot go anywhere without God's hand being upon him and seeing him. And it was during the times when David was walking in unrepentant sin that he most profoundly felt God's hand upon him. You see this in a number of Psalms when, it, when David speaks of himself as if his bones had been broken by the hand of God. For example, uh, Psalm 38. This is one of those Psalms where David speaks of his sin. Psalm 38, verse 1, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no, sound in my, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. He says something similar in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. God's hand was heavy upon him during his times of unrepentant sin. 
So again, David is considering all of this. And then verse 6, he goes on, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, when we say wonderful, usually we mean delightful. We say, oh, that's wonderful. That's not what the word means here. Here, wonderful means astonishing or too difficult, incomprehensible. As David considers the truths about God's knowledge of him, he's left awestruck, laying his hand over his mouth. He cannot comprehend it. It's like a high wall that he cannot scale. God's knowledge of David is like thousand-foot walls of smooth marble that are surrounding him, and he cannot climb over them. So David is being gripped by the implications of what the absolute omniscience of God means, the implications of that upon his life. And in a way, he has, after pondering this, encountered the holiness of God, the absolute otherness of God. And I want you to think about what happens every time in Scripture when someone catches a glimpse of the holiness or the glory of God. What is typically their reaction? Yeah, fear, cowering, a profound sense of your own sinfulness and unworthiness. For example, we see this with Peter in Luke chapter 5. If you turn there, Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses, this is the scene where Jesus um, is being pressed by the crowd. And in order to get some distance between him and the crowd, he gets into a boat with Peter and he puts away from the shore a little bit so he's got some room and he teaches. Then verse 4, Luke records this. He says, When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Now before then, Peter seemed to have no problems being around Jesus. But when he catches a glimpse of the glory of Christ, all of a sudden he feels trapped in that little boat, and he has to beg the Lord to go away from him because he is a sinful man. You see this same sort of thing in Revelation. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 20 Verse 11, the day of great judgment. This verse says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So even creation, encountering God, his glory, his holiness, is like cockroaches running up the wall trying to get away. Nothing is worthy to be in the presence of Almighty God. 
And so, when we consider what David has been saying, when we consider his language of being besieged by the knowledge of God, being unable to attain its heights, and when you consider that together with the question he's going to ask in verse 7, it suggests that he's feeling something of this suffocating confinement by the holy omniscience and omnipresence of God. God is on him. I don't know if any of you have seen the old uh, show Gunsmoke, but one of the deputies, Festus, when he was about to beat somebody up, he'd say, I'm going to be all over you like ugly on an ape. That's, that's what God is like to David. He's all over him. He's on him. David can't make a move, can't think a thought without God being right on him. So what does he say in verse 7? This brings us to that second section, the confining presence of God. What does he ask in verse 7? It says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? God's complete knowledge of David drives him to ask the question of where could he go to evade God's all-seeing eye. David ponders this. Verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If he went as high as he could go into heaven itself, or as low as he could go into Sheol, meaning the grave or hell, would he then be outside of God's reach? He says, no, you're there too. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, what if he went as far east as he could go and he traveled as fast as the speed of light, taking the wings of the dawn? Or what if he went as far west as he could go, out past the Mediterranean Sea, and then he dove down into the ocean and sat on the floor of the ocean somewhere? Would he then be able to get outside of God's reach? The answer is no. Verse 10, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. God's presence is everywhere. And in this verse, David's language seems to take on a more comforting tone. Because he describes God's hand as no longer constricting him, but as leading him and holding him, protecting him. He's beginning to show us God's confining presence from a new perspective, one that should bring comfort. Verse 11, we see this comfort. It says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Verse 11 literally begins this way. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me. Now how can darkness bruise you? Well, David as king, he was a man with enemies. And enemies who could bruise him, bruise him both body and soul. And when do the enemies of God most like to operate? At night, in the darkness. Not only that, but, and you've experienced this, oftentimes fear and temptation feels the strongest at night, in the dark. And it's the same way, metaphorically speaking, David had gone through many, quote-unquote, dark days. 
being pursued by Saul, his son betraying him, trying to steal the kingdom from him. And it's during those times of trial, those days of deep darkness, when we can feel as if God is far away from us. But what does David realize here? He realizes that God is there in the times of darkness just as much as he is everywhere else and every time else. Despite David's confusion and his despair, God could still clearly see. God was still mightily holding on to him. And what these verses say about David are also true of you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh is David's covenant God, and we are also in covenant with this God. He's our God. God has searched you, not all of you, you individually. I'm not speaking corporately. I'm speaking to you personally. God has searched you. There's nowhere that you can go. There's no trouble that you can find yourself in where God is not also right there with his hand upon you. I think sometimes when we think of God and us being part of his people, we can think of ourselves as just being a nameless face in a sea of faces. Because, you know, kings and presidents, they might have a care for their people, but they can't possibly get to know more than a handful of them on any kind of meaningful level. But the God of the universe, he knows you personally and individually. And he knows you more intimately than any parent ever knew their child. More intimately than any pair of best friends ever knew each other. And he knows you more intimately than any husband ever knew his wife or a wife or husband. So that should encourage us. But this truth also ought to give us a holy fear. Because this means that we can have no secret sins before this God. And because God sees all, there are no little or insignificant sins. Because every time we sin in thought, word, or deed, whether or not anyone else sees it, God sees it. And he knows it. I liked what uh, Charles Spurgeon had to say when he was commenting on this aspect of this psalm. Listen to what he said. Quote, We must be, whether we will it or not, as near to God as our soul is to our body. This makes it dreadful work to sin, for we offend the Almighty to his face and commit acts of treason at the very foot of his throne. Go from him or flee from him we cannot. Neither by patient travel nor by hasty flight can we withdraw from the all-surrounding deity. His mind is in our mind, Himself within ourselves. His spirit is over our spirit. Our presence is ever in his presence. So that is the confining presence of God. But we've seen David begin to transition into a more comforting aspect. And that brings us to the comforting craftsmanship of God. Verses 13 through 18. Listen to what he says in verse 13. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. God knows everything about you because he made you. 
He personally fashioned you while you were in your mother's womb, both your body and your soul. This verse begins by saying literally, for you formed my kidneys. And the Hebrew people, they use the word kidneys as a figurative reference to the most secret part of man or his soul. God has formed you in in your mother's womb. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. When David says, wonderful are your works, the word wonderful there in verse 14, it's the same word for wonderful he used in verse 6. But there in verse 6, the consideration of God's wonders, that is the things that are astonishing or too difficult for him, what did that drive him to? Drove him to the end of his wits. But here in verse 14, his consideration of God's wonders, now what is it driving him to? It's driving him to worship, to give thanks. God's omniscience and his omnipresence and his tender care in making us should do two things to us. It should produce two reactions within us. First, as it did in verse 6, it should drive us to our knees in humble acknowledgement of his greatness and his holiness. And second, as believers who have been redeemed, it should open our mouths to give him thanks and to give him praise for his tender mercies toward us. I want you to take a moment to consider how God has made you. Because that's what David is doing. He's thinking about how God has put him together. Consider your body, how it is indescribably more complex than anything that man has ever made or will ever be able to make. Every nerve ending, every biological system, every muscle, every ligament, every joint, every bone placed just so. And there may be some of us here um, who think that we have a physical or a mental defect and we're tempted to think that maybe God made a mistake. Maybe he didn't care enough about me to pay attention when he was weaving me together in my mother's womb. But that's a wrong conclusion. I want you to remember back to what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 4. As Moses was giving every excuse in the book to try to not go and do what God was telling him to do, to go confront Pharaoh. Exodus 4 verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord takes credit for our defects. Verse 12, Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. God doesn't make mistakes. And any physical or mental deficiency that we have was planned by God 
And it is an opportunity for us to glorify him as we rely more fully upon him in those areas. Isn't that what Paul said? When I am weak, then I am strong. Because God's glory is shining more brightly through that area of our life. So consider your body. But also consider your soul. That God has created an eternal soul within you. That is meant to love God, to praise God, to commune with God, and to meditate upon God. And this consideration of what God has done with his own hands putting us together, body and soul, that ought to produce a holy fear within us. That's why David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It should produce a profound sense of humble astonishment at what God has done. You and I are not the product of random chemical accidents. That's a lie that is laughably obvious on its face. Time plus chance plus nothing has never produced anything. How could we be so deceived as to entertain that kind of idea? But we know why. Romans 1 tells us why. Men suppress the truth. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The end of verse 14 there, David says, and my soul knows it very well. Does your soul know this? Or do you think that you are simply an accident? If we are accidents, then it's not that big of a deal to murder a baby in the womb or to hurt, steal from, and kill one another because it all adds up to just being one big accident and there's no eternal consequence. But if we are creatures whom an infinitely holy God has delicately and intricately formed into his image than to steal the life of another, whether it's in your body or outside your body, whether the person is a fertilized egg in a mother's womb or an elderly person with a terminal illness or anyone in between. To kill that life is to do an act of violence against God himself. And that is not a war that you can fight. David goes on in verse 16 through 18. He says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Even when God, like a master weaver, was knitting you together when you were in your mother's womb, he had your whole life planned out from beginning to end. From the big events right on down to the little, small, seemingly insignificant events the little minute details that we saw back in verses 1 through 4. Even you've taken a seat in the pew this morning. That was written in God's book. He preordained that for you. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
this morning, I want you to think about how God was at work in your life to bring you to faith in Christ. Every trial that brought you closer and closer to the end of yourself. Every kindness that God showed you that was drawing you to repentance. Every single exposure you had to the Word of God. Every time someone pointed you to Christ. God planned all of that out even before you drew a breath. And now that you have come to Christ, I want you to think about how God is at work in every single circumstance of your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. Every trial, every inconvenience, every time you open the Bible, every brotherly admonishment, all of that that God is using to prune you and to shape you to be more like Jesus. God ordained all of that before you were born. He put it in his book, as it were. He planned it. And as I was considering this, it was blowing my mind because this means that every circumstance in your life, no matter how big or small or easy or hard it may have been, every single moment of your life represents a thought that God has had about you. God's thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. I was talking with my wife, and just that conversation itself yesterday, I was talking with her about this passage, and even that conversation itself, that was a thought that God had put in his book to plan to happen in my life. Everything, no matter how seemingly insignificant, Christian, God loves you and is gracious to you, and he's deeply committed to you. And in light of the fact that we deserve his wrath, that tells you how inexhaustible his grace is. And it's all because of what Christ has done, and it's all to his glory. So instead of counting sheep when trying to go to sleep, try counting God's thoughts about you, tracing his handiwork across your life how he has brought you to himself and how he is bringing you to himself. You will never run out of things to thank him for. And apparently, the end of verse 18, David fell asleep thinking about it. And when he woke up, it was a new day that God had planned for him. And just as every day before then, God was there with him, watching him and holding him. So that is the comforting craftsmanship of God. And all that we've looked at from verse 1 through verse 18 should drive us to something. It should drive us to a conclusive devotion to God. That's what we see in verses 19 through 24. A conclusive, once-for-all declaration from David that he is devoted to God above all others. Verse 19 Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become 
my enemies. Now, what David says here is not an expression of a desire for selfish vengeance upon those who might have slighted him in some way. No, his concern is solely for Yahweh, his God and his honor, God's honor. David is so devoted to God that God's people are his people and God's enemies are his enemies. It's like Ruth with Naomi. She committed herself to God. She says to Naomi, your people are my people, your God is my God. And when we come to Christ, that's what we're saying. God, your people are my people and you are my God. And that also means, God, that your enemies are my enemies. And the reason for David's hatred here is not that they have offended his personal honor or harmed him personally. He hates these individuals because they hate God. And they speak against God and they take God's name in vain and they're in rebellion against God. It's because of this that David expresses his hatred for them. And every time we come across one of these passages in the Bible, we have trouble with it reconciling what that says with other things that we read in the Bible. But that's because we so often, the hatred that we feel toward others is so often sinful and murderous. We so often hate someone for selfish reasons, because of what they've done to us or what they've failed to do for us. Our hatred is so often self-seeking and petty. And so it's hard to read a passage like this and not think of sinful hatred. But the hatred that David is expressing is a hatred for evil that rises solely out of a concern for the glory and the justice of God. This hatred, it involves rejecting everything evil and everything that the evildoer is promoting that is evil. This hatred that we should have toward evil however, does not mean that we are not at the same time to love evildoers by sharing the gospel with them and pointing them to Christ. We're called to do both. So if you say that you have a righteous hatred towards someone, but you do not at the same time possess any kind of desire for their salvation, then it may be that your hatred is actually sinful hatred. And if we say that we have a righteous hatred for evil outside of us, but we don't have any hatred for the evil inside of us, that is an indicator that our hearts are not right before God. And David models this for us. He doesn't only hate what is evil outside of him, he hates the evil inside as well. Because he goes on in verse 23 to say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David is so devoted to God that he not only wants to be set apart from all of God's enemies, but he also wants to be fully set apart from any enmity against God that resides within his own heart. And this is how we can know if we are in a right relationship with God. When we are 
willing to honestly bring our lives before the spotlight of God's all-seeing eye, to have him examine us and point out wickedness in us and grant us repentance from that so that we may better honor him with our lives. Asking him to cleanse us of those things that will bring the pain of his judgment and instead to lead us in the way in which the destination is everlasting life. We should want nothing to do with the sin that is outside of us, nor the sin that is inside of us. Because our sin has made us enemies of God. We're born sinners, born enemies of God. And like it or not, God is going to answer David's prayer in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. The day is coming when God is going to slay the wicked. And the wicked include all who have not turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Jesus is the Son of God who became a man. He's the same God who wove you in your mother's womb. And he himself subjected him to that same process in the Incarnation. He became a man so that he could be slain in our place. He bore our sin upon himself on the cross. And then he rose from the dead so that he could lead us in this everlasting way if we would turn from our sins and we would put our trust in him alone. And my my prayer is that if you this morning do not know Christ, that God has written this day down in his book as the day that he would make you one of his redeemed people. So let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, your word has astonished us this morning to think of how clearly and perfectly and fully you know us. You know us inside and out. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, there is nowhere that we can go from your presence. There is no hiding from you. So we must deal with you. We must come to grips with our sin, our rebellion against you. Because if we don't, there's nowhere we can run from your hand, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son to save us and to bring us into a right relationship with you, a covenantal relationship where you are our God. And Lord, we as your children delight in the fact that you were at work in our mother's wombs, weaving us together, making us who you wanted us to be, and how you have foreordained every single moment of our entire life, even before we drew a breath. Lord, you are in control of our lives. So when every trial comes up every blessing help us to acknowledge that that is a thought that you have had toward us with with the eye toward us becoming more like Jesus Christ help us lord therefore not to grumble when we are inconvenienced lord but to praise you instead for the work that you are accomplishing in us we thank you for this truth in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing number 128 together